The long-term prognosis of women with HER2-positive breast cancer has improved dramatically with the introduction of trastuzumab into the adjuvant setting, and I met with Dr. Eric Weiner to pick his brain on other therapeutic strategies being evaluated for these patients. Dr. Weiner began our conversation by addressing the issue of HER2 testing. There are still so many controversies in this area. And while on the one hand, I think we all know that we're doing much better than we used to, there are still a lot of unanswered questions. And those unanswered questions start with what is HER2 positive and feeling secure to any extent that we know what to do, particularly with those patients who have borderline test results. Suffice it to say that you know, somebody who has a borderline test result, at a minimum, needs to have that HER2 test repeated. And we need to do our best to try to sort out, and sometimes you just can't fully sort it out, whether we really believe that that tumor is HER2 positive or not. And, you know, these issues exist for ER also. Absolutely. And you have two biologic strategies there, hormone therapy and anti-HER2 therapy, with tremendous potential benefit. And it's truly scary to think we may not be getting this right. Yeah, you know, with ER, though, I think that most of us believe that when we're in an area where we're not sure whether the ER or PR are positive or not, that at least the benefit from anti-hormonal therapy is probably pretty minimal. It may be there, but it's pretty minimal, and it probably does change quantitatively based on the degree of hormone receptor expression. What about yes or no ER positive, though? I mean, isn't it true that you know maybe 10 or 20% of ER negative breast cancer is really ER positive? Yeah, but I suspect that in the end, most of those tumors are extremely weakly ER positive, and that if we really had the right studies to go back and look at, studies looking at hormonal therapy versus no hormonal therapy, that we'd find that the benefits of hormonal therapy in those patients with very, very weak ER or weak progesterone receptors would turn out to be really quite small. But we're never going to know that for sure. So what could a surgeon do to make sure that his patients are getting the best possible assays? I thought you were going to ask, what can a surgeon optimize testing? And there, I think it's, you know, make sure you're part of a multidisciplinary team to make sure that a patient is getting the best assays that she possibly can. I think the single most important variable is the lab. And we know that labs that do these tests over and over and over again tend to do a better job. And if you are in a small hospital where the testing is sporadic and not done on a frequent basis, and there are now standards that have been published, that really what you should be doing is sending out your specimens to a reference lab. I guess in terms of HER2, though, you know, we have the issue of, as you mentioned, maybe not clear-cut or equivocal results, but we do have two ways to look at this. One is with IHC, one is with FISH. What's the kind of clinical situation where even with both of those, you're not sure what's going on? Well, so most of the time you do figure it out. And the bottom line is that you have to make a decision about what you're going to call HER2 positive. And in my mind, you know, unless there's some reason to question the lab, an IHC test that shows 3 plus HER2 positivity is positive, period, end of story. And a FISH result that is greater than 2 is positive. If you want to call it 2.2 based on the guidelines, fine. But, you know, you've got to pick some point and then you say that 
greater than that level is positive. So let me throw out a few things that have been a subject of a lot of discussion now over the last three and a half years since the adjuvant trastuzumab data came out. I think the thing I've heard the most about is the issue of the small node negative tumor. I've actually been a little bit surprised that we don't have more data available to address this question. So, I mean, what do we know? For example, ER positive, HER2 positive, let's start with that. Node negative, starting 1 to 1.5 centimeters, 0.5 to 1. What do we know about the numbers? Yeah, well, once you start parsing it into these fine categories, we know less and less. We know from the HERA trial that in the control group in the HERA trial, that patients who had ER-positive tumors, in addition to having HER2-positive tumors, had a lower risk of recurrence. But there, remember, we're just talking about the first couple of years. So whether those patients ultimately are as at high risk, we don't know. In terms of the patients with small node-negative cancers, I'm aware of three reports. One is a series of I believe about 100 patients that came from Mass General. It has not been published. And that study suggested that even among patients who had very small HER2-positive tumors, that within the first five years, there was about a 10% chance of developing recurrent disease. Small being under a centimeter? Small being under a centimeter, although interesting, in that study, if I remember correctly, there wasn't much of a difference between T1A and B and T1C tumors. There was a difference between the T1 and T2 tumors. Then we have a bigger data set from the folks at the British Columbia Cancer Agency. This is Stephen Chia and Karen Gelman and others. And their data suggested that among patients with T1 tumors that were HER2 positive, that the risk of recurrence over the course of about 10 years, and actually I believe that they look not only at the risk of recurrence but at overall survival, but that about 20% of those patients were in fact at risk for recurrence and in fact died, I don't know that we know as a result of breast cancer, but we can presume that most of them died as a result of breast cancer. And in that data set, I believe there was a modifying effect of ER as well. And then most recently, we have these very interesting data that came from MD Anderson. This is 1,000 patients. So San Antonio. Right. Came from MD Anderson at San Antonio. Yeah, they presented at San Antonio. Right. Right. They had about 1,000 patients of whom roughly 100 had HER2-positive cancers. And... What they suggested in their data set is that among patients with these small, defined as less than 2 centimeter, node-negative cancers, that those that were HER2 positive had a little more than a 20% risk of disease recurrence through the first five years of follow-up, which was substantially higher than, of course, patients with other subtypes. Patients who had triple-negative cancers were also at higher risk than patients who had ER-positive HER2-negative cancers, but not as high a risk as those with HER2-positive cancers. Now, in their study, they did not look at treatment, and I believe that these patients, in fact, were untreated. So no conclusion could be drawn in terms of the efficacy of treatment. But the point that they made was that these patients are at high enough risk to justify some treatment. And finally, I will tell you that we are conducting a rather large, and by rather large I mean 400 is the total N, 
We're conducting a study of 400 patients who have node-negative small HER2-positive breast cancers. This is being done at the Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Center and at 10 other centers around the country. And we define small as any tumor less than 3 centimeters, although I will tell you we don't have very many T2 tumors. Most of the patients included in the study have tumors that are less than 2 centimeters. About half have tumors 1 to 2 centimeters, about half tumors that are less than a centimeter. And in that study, we are treating everybody with 12 weeks of paclitaxel and trastuzumab, followed by the completion of a year of trastuzumab. And to date, we have about 140 patients on that trial. Now, that trial is not going to answer the question whether trastuzumab and paclitaxel is better than no therapy. And it won't answer the question whether trastuzumab and paclitaxel is better than either of them alone. But it will give us a sense as to what the natural history is of women with these small tumors treated with a relatively non-toxic chemotherapy regimen. Yeah, but it's interesting. You kind of back out of it. And if you do see a recurrence rate of 10%, you could assume the baseline. And for example, that low subset probably was at least twice that, maybe more. So I will tell you that if we see a recurrence rate of 10% in this patient population, we will describe this as a big failure. We are looking for a recurrence rate that is less than 5 to 6%. Interesting. So I want to chat a little bit about ER-positive disease, but before I do, I have to ask you to bring up the issue of TDM1, which I'm not sure how many surgeons have heard about, because again, it's only been used in metastatic, (laughs) actually advanced disease, but if I was a surgeon, I'd be keeping my eye on that one. Yeah. So TDM1 is a very, very interesting drug, and I will acknowledge that I have worked extensively with TDM1 And anytime you work with a drug and you see it work, you're more excited about it than if you haven't worked with it. So I'm probably more excited about TDM1 than one of my colleagues who has not worked with it. Although I think since San Antonio, the excitement level has definitely increased. So TDM1 is trastuzumab that is linked to a very tiny dose of a chemotherapy drug a drug that falls within a class of chemotherapy drugs called metansinoids. These were drugs that were initially developed now 20-plus years ago when given systemically in doses that would kill cancer cells. They were way too toxic, and they were pulled. And with TDM1, we believe that the drug is being delivered selectively to the HER2-positive cancer cell, So trastuzumab is functioning as a monoclonal antibody. It is working the way we believe trastuzumab works. The dose is a little bit lower than the usual dose of trastuzumab, but nevertheless, we believe that trastuzumab is working. And it is selectively delivering this chemotherapy that is being internalized and is then resulting in cell death. And we, Trojan horse type thing. Yes, and we know that systemic concentrations of the metansinoid are very, very low with this approach, which accounts for the fact, and we're certainly consistent with the fact, that the drug doesn't appear to be very toxic. No alopecia or chemo stuff? So there's no alopecia whatsoever. There are transient abnormalities in liver function tests, 
And there is some mild thrombocytopenia, which ultimately is dose-limiting, which typically occurs about day seven, the mechanism of which is unclear. And this is a drug that in patients who have received, in some cases, many prior trastuzumab-containing regimens, is associated with a response rate in the range of 40% or a little higher, and many of these responses have been durable. And it's a drug that has been looked at in the phase one setting, has now been looked at in the phase two setting with a study that was presented at San Antonio, and is very quickly being accelerated in terms of its use in clinical trials in breast cancer. And when you talk to investigators who have put patients on these studies, you always can hear a couple patients who got trastuzumab a whole bunch of times, they might have gotten lapatinib, and that, you know, you hear people talking about people who really have meaningful responses with a lot of disease. It's a good drug. And I'm sure you could probably tell me about some people too. It's a good drug. I myself have probably treated somewhere between 7 and 10 of my patients on TDM1. And it's a drug that is remarkably effective. And again, even in patients who have received multiple prior regimens, it doesn't always work for 8 or 10 or 12 months. But in some patients, it is working for that period of time and longer. And these are patients who have been living with metastatic disease for many years. So Mark Pegram recently predicted that 10 years from now, people are going to get a shot at TDM1 after surgery, and then they're just going to go home. Yeah, so I don't know if they're going to get one shot of TDM1. I can tell you that there's a lot of interest in trying to move this drug rapidly into the adjuvant setting over the course of the next couple of years. Before doing that, we clearly need more data in the metastatic setting. We need pilot data to know how TDM1 potentially combines with other regimens. It may be a drug that simply can replace trastuzumab in chemotherapy. It may also be a drug that adds to trastuzumab in chemotherapy. Adds like give it afterward or during? Add like give it afterwards. And so it could do either or both, and we have to figure that out. I guess the flip side is when I think about where we are in breast cancer, when I think about the San Antonio meeting, definitely I think that presentation from talking to people definitely got a lot of, I mean, even if I think about the whole year, I actually asked this at a meeting recently, what happened in breast cancer in terms of medical oncology stuff in the last year do you think is important? Everybody brings up TDM1. They bring up the Austrian study of, you know, premenopausal patients using bisphosphonates and hormone therapy. And you tell me, what else happened in 2008 that you found were exciting? So I'll mention four themes. And I find it hard to talk about 2008, so I'll talk about sort of 2007, okay. 8, All right. and beginning of 9. Encourage me. So first, HER2-positive disease. It's not just TDM1. We have a bunch of new drugs available. Right. We saw the approval of lapatinib. We have HKI, the drug from Wyeth, that is also a dual kinase inhibitor that has remarkably high single-agent activity. We have pertuzumab. We have the HSP90 inhibitors. So we have a number of drugs for HER2-positive disease, and I really believe that we have to rapidly figure out how to use these drugs, use these drugs in patients who have earlier stage disease. But I think we have to be careful, because I think we have to do two things. On the one hand, we need to give drugs 
that they're presently not receiving to patients who need more or patients who need different. On the other hand, we have to be careful not just to have every patient with HER2-positive disease leave their doctor's office with a smorgasbord of anti-HER2 therapies. So we can't make the mistake with HER2-positive disease that some might argue we had made with chemotherapy years ago where we just kept adding on and on and on. We have to both add on, but we also have to know where to take away. That's number one. Number two, in the setting of triple negative disease, I can't point to new drugs that are wildly effective, but the fact that we're talking about triple negative disease, the fact that we've identified this as a subtype of breast cancer that requires further research, that we have laboratory investigators and pharmaceutical companies and clinical investigators all talking about triple negative breast cancer, for me is encouraging. And I think we are going to see drugs there in the next few years. Any ones that you have your eye on that you think might be helpful? I don't have specific ones to talk about. You know, there's interest in old drugs like the platinum salts. It's not clear to me whether those drugs will turn out to be better than some of our newer drugs. And it's also not clear whether there might not be some subset of patients who particularly benefit from those drugs and who presently don't benefit from other chemotherapy drugs. I guess if you'd have to point to a home run, it's a home run that is for a very, very tiny subset of those patients. And those are the patients who have BRCA1 mutations, and these are the PARP inhibitors. Theoretically, the PARP inhibitors work for patients who have either BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations because PARP is an enzyme that's particularly important in those cells. It's just that BRCA2-associated breast cancer isn't usually triple negative. So when we talk about triple negative and advances, I'm linking BRCA1-associated triple negative disease and what's been seen with the PARP inhibitors. Yeah, and we're pretty selective about you know what kinds of new medical oncology drugs we talk about in the surgical series, but and focusing on things that really maybe, even though it may be a small number of patients, can have a big effect. And the PARP inhibitors definitely are interesting. I mean, we've had cases in our education programs of people who've had obviously beneficial responses to them. The PARP inhibitors are very interesting. The big question is whether the PARP inhibitors will play a role in sporadic triple negative disease or not. And we and others are trying to answer that question. So the last two areas are both areas where there aren't clear answers. So one is the Austrian study looking at the role of the bisphosphonates as adjuvant therapy to reduce cancer recurrence. And in that study, they focused on premenopausal women who were having ovarian suppression. And in that context, there was a statistically significant benefit associated with receipt of a bisphosphonate, specifically Zomata. 35% fewer recurrences. Yeah, although absolute numbers that are much less impressive. And I think the big question is, A, will this be confirmed? And B, will this be seen in broader subsets of women with breast cancer? And I guess I should add a C, which is, is this benefit bone-specific or does it go beyond bone? The study would suggest that the benefit goes beyond bone, but I think we just need to see it's one study. And I guess beyond bone being different mechanisms of action, maybe even a direct effect. I mean, Martine Picard did the discussion after that and talked about, quote, seed and soil. You buy into all that stuff? I buy into it as a really interesting hypothesis, and I want to see what the clinical data show. And at the moment, 
outside of a patient who is being treated just as those patients who were treated in the Austrian study, I wouldn't be in a rush to use a bisphosphonate to prevent recurrence. In patients who are getting ovarian suppression and additional hormonal therapy, I think it's reasonable to use a bisphosphonate just as they used in the Austrian study. And finally, I think there's been a lesson about hormonal therapy, and that lesson is we're still not doing that well. That's not encouraging. I'm asking you to encourage me. Well, but sometimes it takes discouraging results to get people to look for new solutions. So the aromatase inhibitors have added to tamoxifen. There's no question about that. They add when either given in place of tamoxifen or given in addition, and in addition I mean sequentially with tamoxifen, in the adjuvant setting. But in terms of the number of deaths we're preventing with the aromatase inhibitors in the adjuvant setting, it's still a very, very tiny number. And I think that what that means is that we have a large group of patients who are cured with surgery. We have another large group of patients who benefit from standard hormonal therapy. And we have another group of patients, and this is the group of patients that remain very challenging, where hormonal therapy by itself is still not enough, whether it's tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor or the two in sequence. And we're going to have to get smarter about combining hormonal therapy with other agents. And there's a lot of interest combining hormonal agents with other inhibitors of growth factor pathways. And this, of course, is the direction of a lot of research. So I realize I'm not charging you up with this one, but I'm stating a truth, and the truth is that for all the thousands of women who have participated in trials looking at aromatase inhibitors, we're still not making nearly as big a difference in the clinic as we would like. And if we are ultimately going to reduce mortality from ER-positive, HER2-negative breast cancer, we're going to have to do better with our present hormonal therapy We also, at the same time, and we haven't talked a lot about this, we have to figure out which of those patients are really benefited from chemotherapy. Well, you know, we're always looking to, you know, where are some things where we actually have tools that maybe we could use a little bit better to try to get a better outcome for the patients. And I guess one of the things I wonder about with hormonal therapy, obviously it's being looked at in trials, is the duration. Yep. And how do you deal with those second five years, there's a lot of relapses are occurring during that time. It looks like hormone therapy continues to work. Do you think that that maybe is an arena that over the next five or 10 years is going to maybe get us another boost? Well, I think it's a hugely important area. What is very clear is that patients with ER negative disease, when they're going to have recurrences, do so almost always in the first five years. For patients with ER positive disease, recurrences remain a problem for 5, 10, and 15 years. I ultimately hope that we will have therapy that we can give women for a year and they'll be done with it. But at the moment, I think that much of the benefit we're going to do is by extending hormonal therapy. I think it's one of the reasons that Paul Goss's MA17 trial is so very important. And that was a study looking at an AI letrozole after, after tamoxifen. Right. Now, given the fact that there aren't too many patients getting five years of tamoxifen anymore in the postmenopausal setting, it begs the question exactly what that extended endocrine therapy should be. But this is an area where we need to do more work. And in my mind, we need the equivalent of a recurrence score 
for women who are five years out. We need to know at that five-year point or six or seven years or four years, we need to know who is still at significant risk of recurrence and who is not at risk of recurrence. Without that, we would again find ourselves just treating everyone and not being nearly as specific as we would like. I think the real hope is that eventually we will have a much better sense as to which women are at risk for recurrence when they're at risk for recurrence so that we can tailor our therapy so that each woman really gets what she needs. But don't get me wrong, we're not there. That's interesting, though, when you talk about we need a recurrence score, because, I mean, we do have a recurrence score, but I guess it's interesting. We haven't really looked at it in that time window. That would be very interesting to look at. We, We need it. Nancy Lynn and I wrote a little piece in the JCO about this several months ago. And in it, we said, we need better predictors of who's at risk for late recurrence. And if you think about it, to some extent, the predictors of which women are at risk of late recurrence may be very different than the predictors of women who are at early risk of recurrence from ER ER-positive disease. So for example, women who have high-grade ER-positive disease probably are at higher risk of early recurrence. It's those women with lower-grade disease, I suspect, who are at greater risk of late recurrence. But we still know much less about this than we would like, and my speculation certainly doesn't substitute for data. And I guess, I mean, you never really even solve the riddle of what's going on when somebody recurs at six years. I mean, I guess we assume it's sort of limping along there for six years, but we really don't know that. What's the tumor been doing all that time? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's Where, where's been it been? Recently, when I was at the ASCO GI meeting, I heard a lot about stemness yeah. and stem cells. I don't know if that potentially is the answer. I don't know. And I don't know if there's one stem cell for all of breast cancer or not, or whether there are different stem cells, perhaps for some subtypes of breast cancer. And I think you know this is all to be answered in the next few years. It's true, though, that in terms of therapeutic advances outside of HER2-positive breast cancer, it's hard to point to anything that's really been so practice-changing in the last few years. But I think we're going to get there. I think we're first going to get there in HER2-positive disease, and then we're going to get there in these other subtypes, these other subtypes which turn out to be much more complicated than we think. And finally, since you know, we've been talking about the fact that much of this is geared towards surgeons, there's still a big role for surgery and doing surgery right. And that's going to remain an important part of breast cancer for a long time. And that's particularly true when we do preoperative or neoadjuvant therapy, where we have to be very, very careful about the surgery that's done. Again, I see surgeons much more involved in systemic issues. And part of it, I think, is the oncotype. You know, they're ordering it. They're learning about it. We've documented that they know the data, although I don't know. I don't think they're quite into the more recent stuff that's come out in node-positive disease, which I think is pretty provocative. And I mean, we need more data, but it's starting to look like it makes sense. I think it all comes together pretty nicely. Yeah, I guess the bottom line is that even if you have five or ten positive nodes... Theoretically, you could have a tumor that just, that's not, the prognosis is just not going to get any better with chemo. I don't think there are many of us at the moment who, short of a patient who has multiple comorbidities, would be willing to omit chemotherapy if there were six positive nodes. But I can tell you that there are patients who have 
well-differentiated, strongly ERPR-positive, HER2-negative tumors with six positive nodes who I routinely give chemotherapy to, and I would not consider not giving chemotherapy in that setting in 2009. But each step of the way, I'm saying to myself, is this doing any good? Yeah, and where are we going to be in five years? Right. If we have enough data, you know, if I were a betting person, I'd say there are plenty of high-risk patients who just don't benefit from chemo. I think that that is exactly the case. I mean, it's tragic because you can't really do something to lower it. But, you know, the other thing, actually, if you think about it, maybe there are a bunch of people who are avoiding recurrence through the recurrence score, avoiding recurrence through oncotype by getting chemo who maybe would have previously been thought to be low risk or actually high risk. You lower it, you avoid recurrences that way. I think that there are a relatively small number, but definitely patients who otherwise, based on size and lymph node status, would not have been receiving chemotherapy who are now getting chemotherapy as a result of a test like Oncotype. And those in all likelihood, still can't say for sure, but those in all likelihood are patients who are really benefiting from it. 